0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In 2010, China withheld shipment of rare earth elements to Japan during a territorial dispute between the two countries. Rare earths are a group of metals that are essential in the manufacture of goods, such as cell phones and computer hard drives. They're also a critical element in wind turbines and electric vehicle motors. Today, China is the source of 85% of the world's supply of refined rare earths, a fact that has raised concern in the United States given diplomatic tensions with China, and as demand for clean energy technologies has increased. And a future disruption in the supply of rare earths, similar to that experienced by Japan a decade ago, could have a crippling effect on clean energy development in the U.S. and elsewhere. On today's podcast, we'll look at the market for rare earths, explain why they're so important to clean energy, and discuss the growing calls to diversify the world's rare earth supply. We'll also talk about the dirty underside of rare earths, the mining and processing of which can be environmentally destructive in the extreme. This is a reality that puts the production of the metals at odds with the environmental promise of clean energy. Here to discuss rare earths are two guests. Amy Chu is an assistant professor of chemistry at Mills College, and Oscar Serple is associate director of academic programming here at the Climate Center. Their recent report, Rare Earth Elements, a resource constraint of the energy transition, was funded by the Climate Center. Amy and Oscar, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Andy. It's good to be here.
0: Thanks for having us, Andy. Amy, the new report looks at the global trade in rare earths and at the economic and environmental challenges that are linked to their production. To get us started, what are the rare earth elements?
1: so rare earth elements are 17 chemical elements in a very specific location on the periodic table of elements and you can search for one of these periodic tables for example online which is a really convenient source and count from the left side of the table to the third column and in this column the elements in the fourth the fifth and the sixth row together, collectively, these 17 elements, in total, they are called rare earth elements. And these elements are very interesting because while they all have very similar chemical reactivity, um, which is what you would expect for elements within the same column of the periodic table, they each have distinct magnetic properties. For example, the element neodymium um, can be very easily purchased because they're often made into novelty toys because of uh, the neodymium's strong magneticity. And before we go any further, I just want to make a very clear distinction here between these 17 specific rare earth elements and the elements lithium and cobalt. So these two elements, lithium and cobalt, they are absolutely critical resources to today's technologies, um, and they are often called rare earth metals, which can often be very confusing due to um, its name being very similar to rare earth elements, which are the 17 elements that do not include lithium or cobalt but lithium and cobalt, they have very different functions and they present challenges that are distinct from rare earth elements because of the differences in the ways that they are mined, their geological distribution, and a host of other reasons. So I just wanted to be clear that our discussions here today, when we refer to rare earths, they do not include lithium or cobalt, but just the 17 specific rare earth elements.
0: Amy, so I understand there are also two uh, particular rare earths that are really relevant to clean energy, and those are neodymium, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and dysprosium. Is is that right?
1: Yeah. So you know, we just talked about neodymium as a strong magnet, and they're often made into novelty toys. Uh, in fact, they can be made into one of the strongest permanent magnets known to us. Permanent magnets mean that they can generate their own magnetic field and it's actually one of the most uh, more common magnets that we encounter in everyday life. So those magnets that are sitting on your refrigerator right now, those are permanent magnets. And because of this unique physical property of neodymium, it is used in various technologies that require magnets. And in addition to neodymium, like you have mentioned, uh, the element dysprosium and also an additional an element, praseodymium, these are uh, also really important rare earths that can be added into the strong neodymium magnets to modify their physical properties based on the application that you desire to implement them in.
0: Now, so, so why are rare earths so important to the clean energy industry?
1: So the intense interests that rare earth elements are receiving today um, are largely driven by their magnetic properties, which we have just been discussing. And in fact, the dominant use of rare earth elements right now is for magnet production. Uh, Close to 40% of of all rare earths mined are used in making magnets. And this brings us to why they're so important in the clean energy industry, it's because magnets are absolutely essential to the way that we generate and use electricity. So two examples that I wanna bring up here today that are related to our discussion, the first one being electric vehicles. The electricity that is released from the vehicle battery first interacts with a strong magnet, and then that magnet turns the electrical motor, which is what drives your vehicle's wheels forward. This is an example of how electricity can be transformed into the energy of motion through the use of magnets. This process can also be conducted in reverse in the second example that I want to mention, where a force generated by motion can be transformed into electricity through the interaction again between a magnet and the force. And this is the case for wind turbines.
0: You know, Oscar, I, my understanding is that rare earths aren't, in fact, that rare. Yeah, Andy, that's right. I mean, you
2: know, I think it's a name that um, really emerged because these uh, these elements are found in very low concentrations. But actually, when you look uh, at their distribution globally, um, they're very uh, dispersed. So they can be fi- found in a lot of places, unlike uh, cobalt or lithium or, or, or some materials like that, which are very concentrated. Um, and in terms of production, they're really not that rare either. For example, um, global production, annual production of rare earth elements is about 250,000 tons. Um, if you compare that to a truly rare metal, something like gold, uh, we only produce, um, uh, we produce about a thousand times more rare earths than we do gold every year. Um, so the game, you know, the name is a maybe a little bit misleading. Um, and you know, this is actually a very good thing because um, projected demand for rare earths is uh, is going to increase rapidly over um over the coming decades for nearly all of these seventeen elements that that Amy mentioned. And you know this is because technologies are going to continue developing that that leverage their unique Uh, magnetic and also luminosity properties Um, but the most striking increase in demand is going to be for these three uh, uh, three elements that Amy mentioned and their and because of their use in um, in some clean tech so neodymium praseodymium, and dysprosium all three of which um, are are, are going to see um, very extreme increases in demand at least, according to the most rigorous estimates that we were able to find, um, so neodymium is going to increase 700% uh, by 2035 over 2010 production levels. Dysprosium set to increase uh, 2,600%, and praseodymium set to uh, increase by at least 650%. And these estimates, frankly, are probably low. Um, the these projections have not been updated. Uh, in most recent years since, um, you know, new, very ambitious decarbonization targets have been set around the world. Um, And, you know, today it's looking as though um, production could be increasing by as much as 10 to 15% per year for the next decade or so. Um, One of the sort of economic challenges with rare earths is that they're typically uh, co-located with each other. So you don't find neodymium on its own you don't find dysprosium on its own you find them in combi- in combination with many of the 17 rare earth elements um, and what this means is that if you have increased demand for a dysprosium you're going to uh, get uh, increased mining and production of these other 17 elements just as a, as a byproduct essentially um, And what this means is that those elements' uh, production could increase faster than demand, um, which could lead to an oversupply of some of these lesser-used rare earth elements, driving costs down for those materials and effectively transferring that cost to the cost of neodymium, praseodymium, and dysprosium, the three elements that are really necessary in uh, the clean energy uh, transition. Um, as Amy said, fortunately, uh, you know, many of these rare earths have similar properties. And so there will be opportunities to substitute, uh, for elements with lesser demand. Uh, however, kind of balancing production during a period of rapid growth like this, um, and figuring out new uses is going to, it's going to demand, you know, vigilance and, and innovation on the part of manufacturers.
0: You know, the growing demand uh, for rare earths raises a a question or a vulnerability, and that's related to to China's dominance in the production of of rare earths. Uh, Tell us about some of the political and economic concerns that are raised by China's uh, actually near monopoly in certain aspects of the the rare earth industry.
2: Yeah, I I mean, so historically, um, China's monopoly over rare earth element production and refining capacity... Um, has been of greatest concern to national security and defense agencies, really. Um, it's been seen and is and is really still seen as a national security risk. And this is because rare earth elements are required um, in many military ap- applications. Uh, for example, they play a um, critical role in, in missile defense systems, uh, nuclear warheads, fighter jets have, have um, rare earths incorporated. Um, and that's just to name a few examples. And so the disruption in supply from China of these refined products could, the fear is, significantly hobble um, sort of defense operations. Uh, however, when it comes to the actual quantity of rare earth elements um, used, the energy transition um, specifically evs and wind turbines represent a much larger source of demand for rare earth elements than the military does Um, just as a disruption in supply from china would would impact defense preparations uh, it could also impact um, domestic clean energy industries Uh, and this would be especially troubling for example if limited supply forced um, uh, domestic competition between, for example, U.S. defense and domestic energy investments. So currently Mountain Pass Mine in Nevada uh, contributes about 15% of global supply of unrefined rare earth elements. Um, And this is really the only sizable U.S. mine. Um, It is becoming, you know, an increasingly large player in, in, in mining capacity. Uh, but China still dominates production of the refined products. Uh, today, uh, China controls upwards of 80% of that processed material.
0: So, Oscar, following up on that, you know, how did China become the dominant supplier?
2: So it wasn't always the case that China controlled supply. Uh, up until sort of the early 1980s, China really had no uh, rare earth production or refining, refining capacity to speak of. Um, Up to that point, Mountain Pass Mine that I mentioned in Nevada um, produced most of the world's rare earth elements. The trouble was that um, because rare earth elements are geographically dispersed, as I mentioned, um, there's no real necessity, geologically speaking, to mine these materials in the U.S. And comparing Chinese and U.S uh environmental protections um essentially strict environmental laws in the U.S. and relatively lax protections in China um gave gave mining in in China just a, a strong competitive advantage in terms of cost and it soon became apparent to uh you know rare earth uh producers that it was not worth continuing to produce this material in the U.S. So over the following 20 years, there was this massive global pivot in production. And by around 2010, China controlled upwards of 95% of rare earth element production. Um, As I said, mountain passes started to increase production again, um, as are countries like Australia and Brazil. But China still controls the the lion's share. and there's also the added complication that nearly all refining capacity is still in china so mining in the u.s doesn't solve the whole issue uh it it it, it will add cost actually to the production if it has to then be sent to china uh, for refining and it doesn't really address the u.s's concerns about uh, reliability of supply um, so a company called MagnaQuench quench uh, was one of the last magnet manufacturers in the US so this was um, back in the 1990s but that was actually sold to a Chinese consortium um, in 1995. you know when you look at the last several decades um, it just frankly becomes clear that China made rare earth element production a priority and the US simply did not and
0: we're now faced with with those consequences moving forward Well, I think it's interesting as well. The the market for rare earths isn't that big. I saw a figure just over $1 billion for rare earth exports. But the industries that are dependent on rare earths are many, many, many multi-billion dollar industries. So there's a a lot tied, obviously, into this one. You know, um, Amy, I wanted to to point out, it's, it's probably pretty obvious by now, but what looks to be a great irony Uh, Rare Earths are essential to the growth of clean energy and related technologies such as electric vehicles, yet Rare Earths themselves are environmentally hazardous.
1: Yeah, you make a really good point, Andy, and um, the environmental hazards that using rare earth elements pose was a major area of focus for our team, specifically our team member, Dr. Benjamin Perrin in MIT right now, who couldn't uh, be here with us today, he wrote a really great piece about this in our digest the hazards attributed to rare earth elements is largely related to the extraction process which can be roughly separated into uh, the two stages that Oscar mentioned the mining and refining So mining of any natural resources always pose environmental consequences on the area where the resources are mined. But what is really challenging uh, for rare earth elements is the refining process because of what Oscar also mentioned are the low concentrations of rare earths. And this means that the mined rock only has a small amount of rare earth elements present and a whole lot of other stuff. And once the rare earth elements are extracted, we would have to either find other uses for that other stuff or discard it as waste. So I like to think about this um, challenge, uh, when I, uh, challenge in the sense of Skittles. Um, so I'm particularly fond of green Skittles and we're going to use green Skittles as um, rare, uh, the rare earth element in our analogy. Uh, But when you get a bag of Skittles, they come in a variety of colors and only a small portion of it are green, which are the ones that I want, and I either need to find someone else to take all of my non-green Skittles or throw it away. And unfortunately, a lot of the waste that I need to throw away during the refining process of rare earths, um, they are radioactive and poses significant health and environmental concerns when they are not stored properly.
0: So it's kind of like the problem with the blue M&M's, hey? You don't want to throw away the rest of the bag, but you got to do something with it. (laughs) And I want to, I love that analogy, Amy. Uh, And and I guess maybe to just
2: sort of assign some numbers to that, uh, to the Skittles. Um, You know, when we're looking at rare earth elements, it has uh, approximately what we call waste to yield ratio of about 2,000 to 1. So if you think about that as uh, for every 2,000 Skittles you had, there would, there would only be one green Skittle. Um, if you compare this to something like um, copper mining, which is still not great for the environment, certainly, but only has a waste-to-yield uh, ratio of about uh, 150 to 1. So 150 Skittles to one green Skittle. So it's about 13 times less than rare earth elements. And this just emphasizes the um, incredibly low concentrations of rare earth elements in these deposits. And that is definitely a, a major contributing factor to their environmental impact.
0: So Oscar, you know, how, how concerned is industry, uh, the industries that rely on rare earths, um, uh, uh, you know, about the security of, of renewable, uh, excuse me, of, of rare earth supply? Yeah,
2: so we're in a position where um, the US, Australia, Brazil, um, and others have, have kind of woken up to the importance of having a reliable supply of these crucial elements um, these concerns were further solidified uh, recently when china uh, briefly threatened to restrict rare earth elements as part of the trade war between the us and china um, and again primarily the concern continues to be defense and national security um, which you know i think is somewhat misguided uh, as I said, in terms of gross volume, turbines and EVs um, are going to represent a much more significant source of demand in the coming decades. Um, and these two essential technologies, um, you know, they're they're a key part of the energy transition. If the U.S. or, or really any other country um, is unable to secure the necessary rare earth elements um, for manufacturing of those products, that country is going to be it, frankly, left behind in what is really the kind of industrial revolution of our lifetimes. Um, at the same time, the concern is the increased domestic production of rare earth elements means accepting these very significant environmental risks. Um, in a country like the U.S. that has relatively strict environmental protections, my concern is that we're heading towards... Um, kind of an inevitable conflict between scaling up production quickly enough to support emerging industries, uh, versus sort of sufficiently vetting new mining and refining operations to ensure that they're not having significant detrimental effects on nearby ecosystems and communities. Um, You know, if we cut through this sort of regulatory red tape too quickly, we risk creating a new environmental catastrophe in the form of rare earth element pollution. Um, on the other hand, if we proceed too cautiously um, in increasing production, then we risk kind of delaying domestic growth of EV
0: and turbine production. Um, so it is, it is a real kind of catch 22. Okay, Oscar, so uh, are there any options being considered possibly to, to bypass or reduce the importance Uh, of china as a rare earth supplier
2: yeah there certainly are the 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 biden administration and and, uh, department of energy um, are really looking into um, a number of possible uh, solutions there really the first and foremost response um, has been to try and secure resources from elsewhere or increasing domestic production right Um, outside of china Uh, and this means that uh, not only opening new mines and expanding existing mines, like Mountain Pass, um, but it also means increasing um, domestic and allied refining capacity. Again, you know, if 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 mining increases, but refining is still all in China, that really doesn't solve uh, the US or any other country's uh, concerns about a reliable supply. Um, and it really just adds to costs. So we really need to increase both uh, mining and refining outside of China. So yeah, I'm, you know, I think um, countries outside of China are exploring a number of uh, a number of options. Um, there is the possibility, for example, uh, of trying to mine rich seabed deposits. Now, I'm definitely not an expert on the specifics of this process, but from what I've read on it. I am pretty skeptical that 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 is the right path forward. Uh, You know, currently, mining of rare earth elements happens in in relatively unpopulated, um, fairly arid regions like Nevada, like western China, where containment of waste is, you know, relatively simple. Um, Seabed mining strikes me as kind of a proposal born somewhat out of desperation i i really can't see how this method would ensure the same level of containment of radioactive waste for example as as uh as mining on land
0: you know one of the other issues here it seems like whenever uh, you know any country that would seek to expand its production and refining of rare earths could bring some of the environmental problems they're now pretty much concentrated in China, which is a dominant supplier, home, right? Um, you know, how much is this going to be a, a realistic barrier to the expansion of significant rare earth production outside of China, Oscar?
2: Yeah. I, I, there, yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are several traits of, of rare earth element mining that, uh, and refining that are problematic. Um, as we've already mentioned, you know, the high kind of waste to yield ratio is a big one. Uh, the co-location with radioactive elements like uranium and thorium, um, is obviously a huge concern. And also as is the case with a lot of mining and refining, uh, is just the use of, of acids and solvent liquids that make production a significant environmental threat, really no matter where it's performed. So this is not, these are not concerns specific to China. Um, I guess my concern is that if the US or Australia uh, or others feel the need to rapidly increase production um, in response to either reduced Chinese exports or just even just the threat of reduced Chinese exports in the future, that that production may increase perhaps too rapidly and without the environmental due diligence that a process like this really requires.
0: You know, Amy, this brings up a a kind of related question, right? So, um, you know, if rare earth production is to increase in the United States, Australia, elsewhere, and it's done in an environmentally responsible way, this, I would assume, implies that the costs of the products are going to grow up, uh, to go up as well, right? So is the market, and are these other countries, such as the U.S., willing to foot these costs? And, And with industry, what would the response of industry be to this? Uh, to get, you know, maybe clean, yet very expensive rare earths.
1: Yeah, Andy, I agree with that viewpoint because one of the most common ways that we manage environmental impacts of uh, the extraction of any natural resources is through imposing a pollution pricing scheme. So we can think about doing that for rare earth elements uh, is to impose a uh, a pollution tax. And like you've mentioned, this uh, will inevitably increase the cost of rare earth elements that uh, not a lot of developed countries will be willing to accommodate. And um, there's another factor that may further contribute to increased costs of the valuable neodymium and dysprosium that may disincentivize countries other than China to engage in rare earth element extraction and further complicates this picture. And this is actually something that Oscar has already briefly mentioned, is the cost of the other rare earth elements that are co-extracted and because these 17 different elements even though they're not all particularly desirable for uh, technological applications um, they are often naturally present together in the same mind rocks but I I like to go back to um, the Skittles analogy. So if you think about my uh, high desire for green Skittles and I buy bags and bags of Skittles just to get the green ones out, I inevitably have to bear the full cost of all the different colors of Skittles. And if I cannot find someone else to take the non-green Skittles off my hands, that would essentially increase the cost of the green Skittles altogether for me. And so if you think about um, us not being able to find other applications for the non-neodymium, dysprosium, and praseodymium, which are the highly desirable magnetic elements. So if we cannot find other buyers um, or applications for these non-neodymium, praseodymium, and dysprosium elements that inevitably increases the cost of the more valuable magnetic elements that um, we want so overall these possible scenarios will lead to the price increase and uh, could perhaps pose a risk to the rapid deployment of clean energy technologies on a large scale um, because not a lot of developed countries like the u.s are willing to bear the uh, cost of these more expensive materials
0: well, you also just brought up the issue of time to market, right? So even if we were to aggressively move forward in this country to expand the mining and refining, uh, you know, of in magnet production, right, uh, based upon uh, rare earths, that's going to take, you know, a decade once you look at all the permits and, you know, the physical construction of facilities, But we've got a pretty aggressive, you know, renewable energy portfolio, you know, future right here. I mean, the Biden administration is looking for, you know, uh, 100 percent clean energy by the year 2035. Uh, Simply put, are we going to have domestic production anytime soon that would meet that demand?
1: That's a really good point, and I think um, Oscar already brought up some really good points about this as well, and I just want to echo some of that. Um, So a few things we want to consider, the first one is that if we want to start extraction here in the U.S., it really takes time to conduct the environmental studies, get the right permits, and then it takes quite some time to ramp up the capacity. And so these things are all really important, right, because we want to extract rare earth elements in an environmentally responsible way but that inevitably will take up more time which is at odds with what is needed for the rapid deployment uh, of these elements in renewable energy another way that has often been discussed to uh, be a possible way to overcome the price increase challenge is to recycle rare earth elements to decrease the need of the harmful practice of mining. And so retired wind turbines and electric vehicle motors, they are particularly suitable for recycling. However, if you think about the long lifetime of these products, say eight to 10 years for an electric vehicle motor, and perhaps up to 20 years for wind turbines, it will take a very long time for all of these retired equipment to be able to meet the demand of the expanding capacity of wind energy and electrical vehicle deployment. So at least in the near future, recycling and also starting up new extraction operations in the US um, will not be able to meet our uh, near future goals of rapid deployment. So there's really not a very clear best path forward to drastically decrease dependence on foreign producers right now.
0: You know, Amy, earlier I asked Oscar a question uh, about, you know, uh, what might be done to bypass uh, dependence on, on China as the primary supplier of rare earths. want to ask you, and you just kind of started into this uh, just a moment ago, uh, are there ways to bypass the need for rare earths uh, generally? Are there substitutes for rare earths that might be acceptable, uh, and, you know, uh, for industry?
1: Um, Yes, there are several possible alternative strategies and I'm just going to bring up a few here. Uh, For example, um, one alternative strategy is to use magnets that are not made from rare earth elements. So we talked about how rare earth elements are permanent magnets, which are like those magnets that you use on your refrigerators. Um, They can also be made from non-rare earth elements. For example, um, the most common permanent magnet are usually made from metals like iron and nickel. So these are uh, metals that are a lot more abundant and does not have such a large carbon footprint for the extraction. However, the main drawback of that is they have weaker magnetic strength. And so right now there's a lot of research on magnet compositions to reach a desirable compromise in the magneticity versus the amount of rare earth elements used by decreasing the percentage of incorporated rare earth elements while retaining the magnetic strength by substituting with other metals that also exhibit permanent magneticity. And just one more possibility that I want to bring up is to encourage the use of technologies that are based on electromagnetism instead of using permanent magnets. So in contrast to permanent magnets, electromagnets generate magnetic fields using an externally applied electrical current, but the magnetic field disappears once the electrical current is cut off. And an important example of how electromagnetism can be used in energy applications is the use of electromagnetic induction designs these designs have been around for a very long time and like those that utilizes permanent magnets um, the Induction design uses magnets from electromagnets to generate electricity with that key distinction that they're not using permanent magnets. And these technologies have been around for a while. In fact, the first few Tesla models, like the Model S and the Model X, uh, they use induction designs that do not rely on rare earth metals. And most of the wind turbines today also use some sort of induction design. However, induction designs are usually a lot more complicated and require many more components compared to permanent magnet designs. So going back to that example of Tesla electric vehicles, they have actually begun using more and more permanent magnets based on rare earth elements in recent years. And the newer models are often a combination of induction and permanent magnet designs because of of the um, more simplistic design and lower mass, lower weight of permanent magnets. In wind turbines, induction designs uh, require gearboxes that need to be maintained on a regular basis, which make them not very ideal for offshore purposes, offshore wind turbines, uh, because they're a lot more difficult to get to if you want to maintain these gearboxes. So offshore wind turbines really benefit from having permanent magnet designs that are lighter and do not require as much maintenance. So here we have discussed at least two alternatives that present significant drawbacks compared to using rare earth elements. And there's really little incentive right now for the industry to move towards these alternatives because of their more complicated designs or uh, larger weight that they will uh, put on the product itself. So uh, especially when we can get rare earth elements so cheaply in today's market, right? So a pathway to dramatically reduce our dependence using these alternative technologies uh, really remains unclear. But thinking about all the environmental consequences and the geopolitical complications, I think we really need to think about a hybrid approach when adopting these technologies instead of relying solely on rare earth elements going forward.
0: You know, Oscar, I want to jump back for a moment to the question of of, of you know, China's dominance in supply. And we've talked a lot about the environmental concerns that any country that, again, would want to, to build up its own domestic rare earth supply chain would need to consider. But China is also uh, getting quite serious about the environmental impacts of its own rare earth industry. There, there seems to be a, a kind of a, a tension here, right? So China is the low cost leader in rare earths because in the past, my understanding is it had been quite lax in some of its environmental oversight. It's now starting to tighten that up. Uh, is China willing to give up its dominance uh, as a supplier of rare earths for environmental considerations and the costs that they would bring?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, Andy, I think that's a that's a very open question. Uh, I don't know that anyone really, well, I'm sure someone knows, but I unfortunately don't know the answer specifically to whether or not China would be willing to do that. Um, I mean, I can say that China has generally um really been increasingly concerned about their uh, air, water and soil pollution over the last um, several years. Uh you know, they're trying to remedy really decades of environmental disregard that has, you know, that was seen as necessary for building uh, their economy into what it is today. Uh but certainly yes, for the last several years um the government has been shutting down small-scale um, and illegal rare earth element mining, uh, and President Xi has been has really stressed the importance of of mining rare earths uh, in an environmentally responsible way. So, um, you know, they're they China is definitely taking steps to address the pollution from rare earth elements. Whether or not that will extend to um a willingness to give up dominance in the market uh I I, I don't know um and th- there's also um there's also the cleanup of these legacy sites to consider uh right and this is really a cost that the Chinese government has insisted the industry uh industry players uh share uh and this alone could uh could lead to increased prices um if if The rare earth industry is now responsible for cleaning up all of these legacy sites Um, the real question is uh you know does does another country um, effectively take china's place supplying these exceedingly cheap uh, and environmentally destructive rare earth materials Um, does china or the u.s uh, for example, find new ways of mining rare earth cheaply and sustainably? Um, or do we see really a global increase
0: in rare earth element cost and or, um, you know, a, or supply shortages? In the United States, are there any particular policy or legislative proposals on the table uh, to, you know, to concretely um, increase domestic production of rare earth and all the refining that goes along with it?
2: Yeah, so the Biden administration um, has sort of uh, initiated a review across federal agencies to, to address rare earth element supply chain vulnerabilities, uh, and also to look into uh, some ways uh, of incentivizing sustainable domestic production. Uh, so, for example, uh, tax incentives that would encourage uh, domestic production, there is increased um, industry Activity in the U.S. I will say in the last several years, um, so there's some new refining capacity uh, being built up in Texas um, and in Utah by various companies, um, and also Mountain Pass Mine is 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 uh, has the goal of um, reaching uh, the level of capacity that that mine had back in back in the 70s. Um, so there's also been I would say recent policy progress uh, in international partnerships, particularly between the U.S. and Australia. Uh, And this has really been in an effort to secure future supply in case of disruption from the Chinese market Uh, and also to collaborate um, on sort of new research into sustainable and, and, and economical mining and refining methods uh still you know the the primary motivator behind these policies uh is national security uh is the department of defense Uh, i think it might be somewhat as i said misguided um because uh, evs and wind turbines are going to represent such a major uh major demand in the coming decades and i think any plan uh any any uh, clean energy plan that seeks to prioritize investments in you know um, renewable infrastructure clean energy infrastructure and manufacturing it really needs to include uh, proposed solutions for securing a long-term supply of rare earth elements and indeed you know other materials like lithium and cobalt for that matter uh, you know these these are going to be the essential commodities of the energy transition uh, and and any country that that really wants to be an economic leader over the coming decades is going to have to is going to have to find a way to secure a reliable source supply of
0: these of these materials amy and oscar thanks for talking
2: my
1: pleasure thank you andy
0: thank you so much andy today's guests have been amy chu an assistant professor of chemistry at mills college and oscar Serpel, associate director of academic programming at the kleinman center their recent report Rare Earth Elements, A Resource Constraint of the Energy Transition is available on the Climate Center website. This is the last episode of Season 5 of Energy Policy Now. We'll be taking a break in the month of August and we'll return in September with new episodes that make sense of today's most pressing energy policy topics. In the meantime, visit the Climate Center's website, where you can find our archive of more than 100 podcast episodes, as well as the latest research and events from the Climate Center. If you'd like to be notified of the latest from the Center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our homepage. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.